Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In 1873, the Supreme Court offered its first major interpretation of the meaning of the 14th Amendment since that amendment had been ratified in 1868. And as you'll recall, that amendment says that everyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state where they reside. It says that no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. And then to all of this is added a new enumerated congressional power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of the 14th Amendment. And as I mentioned last episode, the immediate background context of all of this was the Civil War, the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, and then the National Civil Rights Act of 1866. There was some debate about whether Congress in 1866 had the authority under the Constitution to pass civil rights legislation in the first place. And so the same Congress that had passed the 1866 Civil Rights Act also proposed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that was ratified two years later by the states. The meaning of the 14th Amendment then becomes an issue in national litigation in 1873, in this case coming out of New Orleans. The background of the case is this. The animal waste from the slaughterhouses in New Orleans contaminated the city's drinking water, and it had been linked to outbreaks of cholera in the city. The Louisiana legislature then passed a law chartering one private slaughterhouse to operate within the city, and all the butchers in New Orleans would then have to pay a fee to use that one slaughterhouse. This would confine the slaughtering of animals in the city to one location, hopefully far enough away from the river that it wouldn't contaminate the city's drinking water. But by doing it this way, the state of Louisiana essentially granted a monopoly to a state-chartered corporation, then forced all of the other area butchers to pay them to continue their trade. Their own slaughtering facilities were essentially worthless. And so the slaughterhouse companies sue, and we get the slaughterhouse cases. Their argument is that the state of Louisiana has violated their 14th Amendment rights in some way. And so the question, which part of the 14th Amendment exactly? Their answer, by granting this monopoly to one slaughterhouse, the state has denied them the right to practice their vocation, one by which they provide for their families, and it prevents them from using their own property for their own purposes. This, they say, is one of the privileges of citizenship that the state can't abridge. If that argument fails, then they have others, and they say that the state has also deprived them of property without due process of law and denied them the equal protection of the laws. And so the Supreme Court begins in the slaughterhouse cases by asking what are the privileges or immunities of citizenship. The answer here is an important one. It hinges on a technical discussion of the wording of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says that no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And it also says that if you are born or naturalized in the United States, then you're a citizen of the United States and of the state where you reside. The Supreme Court in this case then infers from that language that state citizenship is different than national citizenship. If you're a citizen, you're both a citizen of the United States and of your state. But that citizenship is distinct. 
And there are different privileges or immunities that go with being a citizen of the United States on the one hand and a citizen of any particular state on the other. And it's only the privileges or immunities of national citizenship that the state cannot abridge, according to the 14th Amendment. So what are the privileges or immunities of national citizenship? The Constitution doesn't say, but there are some historically plausible options we might give. The first is that the rights contained in the first ten amendments to the Constitution summarize the privileges or immunities of citizenship, and the 14th Amendment now makes those apply equally to the states, essentially reversing the understanding in Barron versus Baltimore. The primary draftsman of the 14th Amendment, John Bingham of Ohio, said something along these lines during congressional debates, inserting that the amendment would, quote, arm the Congress with the power to enforce the Bill of Rights. The second possibility is that the rights contained in the first ten amendments to the Constitution are a good start, but they're not an exhaustive list of all of the privileges or immunities of national citizenship. In fact, the privileges or immunities of citizenship are the fundamental rights that citizens of all free governments should have. There are basic natural rights, but they're incapable of being written down anywhere. For this kind of understanding, we might turn to an otherwise obscure Supreme Court case from the 1820s written by George Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington. Talking about privileges or immunities of citizenship, he says that they are, quote, those which belong of right to the citizens of all free governments. He then says that they could be comprehended under the following heads. Protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the right to acquire and possess property of every kind, and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety. These rights might include rights to travel, rights to practice a lawful vocation, rights to own property, immunity from penalties or taxes that are not applied equally, but they wouldn't be exhaustively written down or listed in any particular place. Then the third possibility, the answer that the Supreme Court actually gives in the slaughterhouse cases, the privileges or immunities of national citizenship are those rights which have to do with the relationship between the individual and the national government. This could be your right to apply for a patent or a passport, your right to have the federal government's protection on the high seas, to have the federal mail delivered to your home, your right to file a case in federal court. But nothing about the 14th Amendment, according to the Supreme Court in the Slaughterhouse cases, changed the basic understanding of federalism and of the relationship between the Bill of Rights and the states that we found in Barron versus Baltimore. The Privileges or Immunities Clause doesn't apply the Bill of Rights to the states, according to the court. It's not shorthand for natural rights or the fundamental rights of citizens of all free governments or anything like that. And catch the reason why. Because the alternative, using the 14th Amendment to protect fundamental rights against state deprivation or empowering Congress to pass legislation that would do just that, would too greatly change the structure of the Constitution and the relationship between the states and the national government. As Justice Miller, in the majority opinion here, acknowledges, quote, the argument we admit is not always the most conclusive which is drawn from the consequences urged against the adoption of a particular construction of an instrument. But when, as is the case before us, these consequences are so serious, so far-reaching and pervading, so great a departure from the structure and spirit of our institutions, when the effect is to fetter and degrade the state governments by subjecting them to the control of Congress in the exercise of powers heretofore universally conceded to them, of the most ordinary and fundamental character, when in fact it radically changes the whole theory of the relations of the state and federal governments to each other, and of both these governments to the people, the argument has a force that is irresistible in the absence of language which expresses such a purpose too clearly to admit of doubt. We are convinced that no such results 
were intended by the Congress which proposed these amendments, nor by the legislatures of the states which ratified them. The court concludes. And then they go on in the opinion to dismiss the arguments about due process and equal protection. No one was deprived of due process of law. A law was passed by the legislature. No property was taken. And the law applied equally to everyone, according to the court. But this was a five to four decision. Not everyone agreed with the limited interpretation of the privileges or immunities clause. In dissent, Justice Field emphasized the fundamental rights of all free men. Justice Bradley emphasized our natural rights, and Justice Swain emphasized the radical change in American federalism that was intended by the 14th Amendment, he thought. But still, the majority opinion by Justice Miller won the day. The 14th Amendment didn't really change anything about how we understood the Bill of Rights in the states or anything about Barron versus Baltimore. Those rights outlined in the Constitution's first 10 amendments are rights that limit the national government, but not the state governments. And that's still the case after the Civil War and after the 14th Amendment, at least according to this decision in the Slaughterhouse Cases. And so after this decision, the Privileges or Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment has essentially been a dead letter. There isn't much there. Instead, the discussion of fundamental rights that limit states under the 14th Amendment, whether those rights are outlined in the Bill of Rights or whether they're the fundamental rights of free citizens or the natural rights of persons, that debate has focused mainly on the Due Process Clause, with the development of the legal doctrine of selective incorporation in the 20th century. That doctrine holds that some of the rights in the Bill of Rights apply against the states because they've been incorporated into the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. To see how this debate played out, consider three cases from the early to mid-20th century. The first is Polko v. Connecticut in 1937. The next is Adamson versus California, 10 years later. And the third is Rochin versus California, 1952. Each has to do with someone involved in the criminal justice system at the state level, alleging that the state has violated some aspect of their Fourth or Fifth Amendment rights. In Polko's case, he was tried twice for the same crime because the state wanted a capital sentence. And he was sentenced to death only the second time around. In Adamson, he was sentenced to death after the prosecuting attorney instructed the jury to take notice of his refusal to testify in his own case. And in Rochin, the police officers entered his home without a warrant and forcibly pumped his stomach against his will to discover morphine tablets. Each of these cases represents a clear violation of some aspect of the Fourth or Fifth Amendments if that same thing had happened at the federal level. Polko's is a clear case of double jeopardy, Adamson's of self-incrimination, and Rochins of an unreasonable search or seizure. And each of these cases then put back on the table the question from Barron versus Baltimore. Does the Bill of Rights apply to the states? The answer for a long time, even after the 14th Amendment, has been no. But in these cases, the court begins revisiting the question, not as an interpretation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, like in Slaughterhouse, but now as an interpretation of the Due Process Clause. Before the state deprives a person of life, liberty, or property, that person must be afforded the due process of law. Does due process of law include within it the rights in the Fourth or Fifth Amendments? Or does the Fourteenth Amendment's due process clause demand its own interpretation independent of whatever rights might be in the Bill of Rights? As you read through these opinions, think about the arguments that are being put forward in each case. Think about the development of these ideas over time and how the cases are interacting with one another. In Polko, the court rules that the Fifth Amendment's protection against double jeopardy does not apply against the states. Connecticut hasn't done anything constitutionally wrong in this instance. 
the Supreme Court sides with Connecticut. And in an opinion written by Justice Cardozo, the court says this, that only those rights which, quote, have been found to be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty are then applied to the states by their incorporation into the 14th Amendment's due process clause. We know if a right is, quote, of the very essence of a scheme of ordered liberty, Cardozo says, if it represents a principle of justice so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people so as to be ranked as fundamental. But then he goes on to say that immunity from being tried twice for the same crime was not one of those fundamental rights. In Adamson, then, the court appeals to Palco and the idea of incorporating into how we read the 14th Amendment those rights that are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty but goes on to find that the protection against self-incrimination is not one of those rights. Reasonable people will draw inferences from a man's silence in the face of serious accusations, Justice Reed says for the court. There's nothing implicit in the concept of ordered liberty that requires that right, the right against self-incrimination, to be protected, according to the court. Then finally, in Rochin, the court draws a line. The state of California in that case had violated Rochin's 14th Amendment rights by coming into his home without a warrant and pumping his stomach. The interesting and unsettled question is why? Justice Frankfurter writes the majority opinion in this case, and he argues that the actions of the police offend a sense of justice and canons of decency and fairness. They shock the conscience, and they violate a principle implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, going back again to Polko. But Frankfurter still doesn't think the Bill of Rights applies against the states through the 14th Amendment, and he gets taken to task for that in the concurring opinion by Justice Black. That debate between Frankfurter and Black points to where we're going next. And so a roadmap. We'll pick up next episode with this debate between Justices Frankfurter and Black about the doctrine of incorporation, whether it makes sense to say that the 14th Amendment's due process clause incorporates the Bill of Rights in some way. And then we'll consider the path of selective incorporation that the Supreme Court ultimately settles on in the late 20th century.